Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. Want to give a quick shout out to those sharing this podcast in Minnesota and Ohio. Of course, my friends in Illinois and Wisconsin. Thank you so much for sharing. If this blesses you in any way, hit that share button. It really does help momentum. Well, this message, like the one before, it's pretty controversial, but scripture takes us there. And so there we will go. Let's get into it. Don't many roads lead to heaven? Like, it can't just be one way. That'd be exclusive. That's not right. It's got to be. It's got to be more than one road to heaven. This surprised me. Sixty percent. Sixty percent of American evangelicals say, "Yeah, there is." And maybe that shouldn't surprise me, you know, because an exclusive Jesus is not going to sit well in a politically correct, uh, obsessed society. But this is. I mean, we find the majority of Christians saying, "Yeah, Jesus is just one of many ways." You know, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, as long as you're overall like a, a good person, you'll eventually find yourself there. I had an agnostic friend. Uh, he's a good friend, super fun guy. We had the best conversations. He put it this way, and he gave me a little illustration. He said, uh, and maybe you've heard this or maybe you've used this. He said, religions are like a few blind men bumping into an elephant, and they all grab a different part of the element and they try to describe the animal that they're feeling. So one man is holding the elephant's trunk and, and he's saying, oh, an elephant is long and flexible like a snake. And the other is holding you know, the, 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 the foot or the leg and says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Elephants aren't flexible. They're, they're like tree trunks. And a third is feeling the elephant's side saying, oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It's flat and it's huge. It's like a wall. And another one has a tusk and said, what are you guys talking about? It's, it, it's sharp and, and hard. And they begin to argue. But the truth is, my, my friend would say, the truth is each one is right, but each one is wrong. They all have a part of reality. None of them see the whole picture and they shouldn't claim to. And so my friend would conclude to me, he would say, religion, Junior, it's the same thing. You think you see God this way, but Muslims see God this way, and Buddhists see enlightenment or divinity this way. But all put together, you got a picture of who God actually is. And so religions, like the blind men, should stop being so exclusive because you have different perspectives. Now, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Kind of sounds great. Problem with that is the only way, the only way you could tell that the blind men only had a piece of the elephant is if you could see the whole elephant. So my friend who's telling me this illustration, he's claiming that you all are blind, all of you religious people are blind, you can't see the whole thing, but I can see the whole thing. That's an exclusive claim itself. Like everyone else is blind except for the storyteller telling the story. So to say that all religions have a piece of the truth is to say, yeah, but I have the whole truth. So you have what, other, what you say nobody else should have, the whole truth. See, reality is, no matter if you believe one religion is correct or all religions are correct, you are being exclusive in some way because everyone believes they have the full truth and others don't. We all think we see the full elephant. And so let's just be honest. The, 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 that's the problem with a lot of people with Christianity. Jesus can't be the only way. He just can't. To claim that Jesus is the only way, not only is that exclusive, at best it's politically correct. It's offensive. It feeds the, you know, the division among religions. And so how can we actually hold to this? And we have to remember who we're talking about. Most of us, you know, when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus being God, 
You know, he's, he's divinity, and, and, and that's what we believe. You know, the one who holds everything together, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the rider of the white horse, the, the one who's coming back with fire in, in his eyes. That's how the majority of us see Jesus. But outside these walls, that's not how Jesus is viewed. We have to remember, to most people, we're talking about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in a rural hick town, you know, the kind of town that, where guys work on their El Caminos and think wrestling on TV is real. You know, it's like a hillbilly elegy kind of town. Born to a teenage girl who wasn't married at the time, adopted by a blue-collar guy named Joe who worked with his hands for a living. The truth is the majority of Jesus' life was lived in relative obscurity. Not too much is known about him until he's about 30 years old. It's safe to assume that he played with his half-brothers, Jude and James, who later wrote books of the Bible. And as Jesus got older, the assumption was that he was just going to go work with his dad, probably doing stonework and maybe making some furniture. He was probably in good shape. He walked everywhere he went. He likely worked with his hands. He probably was not that lanky, awkward, you know, beauty pageant cross-dresser kind of guy that most pictures depict him as. He was just a normal guy who probably had a tool belt and did well in school. About the age of 30, he started his ministry, teaching and healing. He was later put to death because of that ministry, because he claimed to be God. Now, that's, a, that's quite the claim for a guy with an unimpressive resume. Never married, never had kids, never campaigned for political office, never held the title CEO, CFO, CPA, never got his MBA, never even traveled more than 500 miles from where he was born. Yet today, it's pretty incredible if you think about it. Today, Jesus is the most extraordinary, the most controversial, the most loved, the most hated individual who has ever walked this in any other figure in history. History even rotates around him. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. And today, a few billion people claim to follow this Jesus. Of those few billion people, a huge percentage, including this church, believes He's the only way you get to God. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote that there'd be a lot, of, uh, a lot of perspectives floating out there around Jesus, a lot of different opinions and impressions and weird teachings about Jesus. And whether or not you believe the Bible, you have to admit that that claim came true. There's a lot of different Jesuses out there right now. I mean, for example, Jesus has been dragged into mainstream pop culture. Uh, one, of, one of Jay-Z's earlier popular songs, H to the Izzo, V to the Hizze, which might need some translation. It's all about, if you actually look at it, it's all about how Jay-Z is Jesus. Bruno Mars blames his freshness on Jesus. Some of you more older people are just looking at me with confused looks. You know the Beatles, right? Yeah, John Lennon. Yeah, insanely talented. John Lennon said this. He said, we're bigger than Jesus now. And then he died. And he saw Jesus. And Jesus said, ah, see, I'm bigger. You got, you got Carrie Underwood's uh, Jesus Take the Wheel. You have Green Day, Nirvana, Bruce Springsteen. They all take their shots at writing about Jesus and what he was like and, and who he is. Kanye's new album, Jesus is King. I like that album. Uh, that's just music. TV, man, TV, you could go on and on and on. Just even just with a- animated shows. Jesus makes regular appearances on The Simpsons. He shows up on South Park, often to fight Saddam Hussein or Satan. He's on Family Guy, he's on Futurama, he's on American Dad. I mean, Jesus is everywhere. He's been dragged into mainstream pop culture, and most of the time, it is a very inaccurate depiction of who he is. But even still, it has influenced how people, especially people in the church, view Jesus. Jesus has become whoever you want Jesus to be. 
So if you want Jesus to be like a granola yoga master kind of guy, Jesus can be that for you. You want Jesus to hate everyone you hate? He can do that too. You got it. You want Jesus to be a Republican? Great. He likes the elephant. Oh, you want Jesus to be a Democrat? Okay. He likes, he likes the donkey. You want him to be white? Okay. Then Jesus is white. All right. You want him to be black? Okay. Well, then Jesus is black. To most of the world, Jesus has simply become this template that we project whoever we want him to be. Case in point, if you were to look at uh, political movements and how uh, political movements have treated Jesus, it's uh, it's sad, but it's almost like comedy. Look at what atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said. He said, Jesus died too soon. If he would have lived to my age, he would have repudiated his doctrine. In other words, Jesus would have been a good atheist like me. American psychologist Rollo May, he said this. He said, Christ was the therapist for all humanity. So he's that, that great psychologist in the sky. The late Fidel Castro, he said this, me and Jesus, we believe the same thing. He was a good communist. Not to be outdone, Gorbachev fired back, Jesus was the first socialist. <laughs> Adolf Hitler, look what Adolf Hitler said about Jesus. He said, how terrific Jesus fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Jesus was Jewish. But to Hitler, oh no, Jesus was a good Nazi like, like me. I mean, this is what we do. We take Jesus and we squeeze him into whatever, whatever mold and whatever agenda we want him to have. And so there's all these different Jesuses out there. Your Jesus is different than my Jesus and their Jesus is different than, than our Jesus. Our world religions do this too. You ever hear people say, well, all religions, they basically say the same thing. You ever hear that? No, not about Jesus. They're diametrically opposed, especially about Jesus. Uh, the Baha'i believe that Jesus is a manifestation or a, uh, a prophet of God, but is inferior to Muhammad or Baha'u'llah. The, uh, the popular uh, Buddhist belief or take on Jesus is that he is not God, but he is enlightened, much like Buddha was enlightened. Uh, Hinduism has different views about Jesus, but most Hindus would agree that Jesus is simply enlightened like Krishna, or he is one of many gods, but he is not exclusive. Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet, but lesser than Muhammad. Jehovah Witnesses, they believe Jesus to be a created angel, like the, the archangel Michael. The classic Mormon teaching on Jesus is that he is not God, but he is a polygamist who was the half-brother of Lucifer or Satan, and he achieved divinity. Universalism claims that Jesus is like Ryan Gosling, just a super nice guy taking everyone to heaven. New Agers believe that Jesus is not so much a man or God, but a state of consciousness that you can achieve. And then Scientology, the, uh, the popular celebrity religion, uh, teaches that Jesus was an implant forced upon a thedon. I'm getting some confused looks. Can I explain that? No, I can't. I've never done drugs, so... My imagination is limited. Again, we've, we've taken Jesus and we've projected onto him whatever we want him to fit and whatever agenda we want him to have. And as a result, there are a billion different Jesuses out there. And so, you, so there has to be a billion different ways to Jesus then, or to, to Jesus. It doesn't matter what Bruno Mars says about Jesus. It doesn't matter what uh, Nietzsche or Gorbachev or Mormons or Universalists. It doesn't matter what any of them say about Jesus. What matters, the real question is, is what did Jesus say about himself? Because pop culture and historical figures and religions, all of them agree that Jesus is at least worth listening to. 
Islam and Baha'i, they, I mean, Baha'i they, they would say that Jesus is a prophet. A prophet is somebody worth listening to. Hindus and Buddhists say that Jesus was enlightened, uh, somebody worth listening to. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses say that he's at, at the very least an angel, that's somebody worth listening to. I mean, pop culture wouldn't drag him into the spotlight if he was irrelevant. Historical figures wouldn't force them into their view if Jesus didn't matter. And so if Jesus is worth listening to, then what did he say about himself? That's worth unpacking. That's worth considering. And that's what we're going to do today. John chapter 14 is where we're at. John chapter 14. I really encourage you to grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. Um, a lot of people use their phones. Um, but John chapter 14 is where we're at. I feel a lot better when I pray before we get into God's words. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you that this is true. We believe this is true. And God, I ask that you engage our minds this morning. You have not asked us to leave them at the door. You want to engage our minds. You created our minds. Now, Father, please don't just engage our minds. May you open our hearts as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 14. And as the lens of Scripture zooms in on John chapter 14, we enter a dimly lit space. The oil lamps flicker around the room. In the middle of the room sits a low but long wooden table on the table are small little puddles of wine and, and crumbs fill the table. Twelve men are gathered around this table. One just left the room. The conversation has gone from laughter to quiet somberness, almost awkwardly quiet, as the disciples pick away at the remaining bread and check the pitchers for any leftover wine. A few of the more observant disciples, they notice that Jesus' expression changes from cheerful to almost an anxious expression. It seems like Jesus knows what's about to happen, and whatever it is, it does not seem good. Little did they know this was the last meal that they would eat as a group. And what Jesus is about to say will be his parting words before his execution. Jesus reads the room, knowing many of them have noticed his face. He speaks up and he says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I want you to notice something here. Jesus is linking himself to God. So he's saying, the way in which you believe in God, I want you to believe in me in the same way. Now, this is blasphemy. This is putting yourself on the level of God. This is against Jewish law, unless Jesus is God. So this is one of the many, many, many claims, a clear claims where Jesus claims to be God. He continues, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this has nothing to do with the question. It's just kind of a bonus. But whenever we get into scripture, it's like, I don't want to skip over stuff. I want to unpack it correctly. A lot of times, you've heard Christians talk about like, hey, we get mansions in heaven. You ever hear that? Like, when we get to heaven, we're going to get a mansion. Uh, I used to think that. Like, oh, I'm going to get a mansion. That's a, that's a mistaken interpretation. Jesus is promising us rooms here. See, during this time in the first century, houses were constantly being built onto. So when a son would go and marry, when he'd reached the age where he could marry and bring in a wife, uh, he, would, he would marry his wife, and then they would build a room onto the house, onto the family house for the, for the husband and, and the wife to live in. And then their son, when they had a son, that would do the same thing. And they would add another room onto the house, and he would bring in his wife. They called these insulas. And these were complexes where lots of rooms added onto each other, and then in the middle was a courtyard where the family could gather and, and have community. It was like the family insula. You just keep on adding to the house 
once, once the son, or when, when sons get married. Um, this is actually a picture of Capernaum where Jesus called home. In fact, right underneath his structure is where we believe um, Peter's house was. So Jesus, we believe Jesus would have stayed here for quite a while during Jesus' ministry. But you can kind of see like the different small rooms. These are called insulas during this time. And this is the picture that Jesus is painting of heaven. Now we're going to talk more about heaven next week. I'm excited for that. But in a sense, Jesus is saying, I'm the groom, the church is the bride, and I'm preparing a place in my father's insula for you to come live in. So you think about that. In the next life, for a follower of Jesus, I think a lot of times when we think of heaven, we think of like, you know, viewing the father's big house off in the distance. It's not going to be that way at all. No, you're in the house, living in community. That's the picture that Jesus is painting for us. That's why uh, whenever I hear someone say, you know, things like, um, well, I don't like the church. You know, I'm done with the church. I always think, yikes, you ain't going to like the next life then. Because like, we're, it's community. We're, we're going to get a lot closer than we are right now. We're just going to be less annoying because we'll be perfect, but we might as well get used to each other down here. That's kind of the picture Jesus is painting, that we're all going to be living in this perfect community. That might be a little unnerving for us introverts, but we're going to be just fine. Verse 3. He continues on. He says, and if I go prepare a place for you at one of these insulas, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. At this point, an awkward silence falls over the room. Thomas speaks up. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is just so good. I love this. Jesus gives this eloquent speech. You know, you guys know where I'm going. You know the way. Peter and John and James, you know, are they're, they're trying to, you know, look like they're thinking deep, you know, furrow brow and they're looking smart. Yeah, yeah, we know the way. We know what you're talking. Yeah, we totally get it. And Thomas is watching all this go down. He raises his hand. Yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about. None of us know where you're going. And Jesus is like, is that true, guys? We're like, well, technically that's true. We're just trying to look smart, you know. I, I'm so glad. I'm so glad Thomas says this because then we get this beautiful response. From Jesus. In fact, many of you may have this verse memorized. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is so good. My kids have this memorized. But this is one of those verses that we'll like memorize, but it just goes way over our head. We miss the, the beauty and the depth. Like the brilliance of Jesus in this verse is incredible. And again, often it goes right over our heads. I don't want that to happen. It went over my head until recent. So let's just let's take this apart a little bit more. He says, I am, I am the way. It's kind of cool with the whole idea of I am the way. Um, right after Jesus left the earth, his followers, they got together. Okay, All right, We're going to go launch the church now. They didn't call themselves Christians. You know what they called themselves? They called themselves the way. That was the movement they were doing. So it's like the, our first name as, as like church was the way. Because of what Jesus said right here, he says, I am I'm the way. Now notice the terms that Jesus uses. Jesus doesn't say, I'm one of many ways. I am a way. It's singular. I am the way. Jesus refuses to be a way because he is the way. And something to understand is uh, during this time, during Jesus' time, the highway system was very primitive compared to our highway system. Like today, you know, we go drive and there's like exit ramps and entrance ramps. And, you know, if there's a car accident on your way home, maps can reroute your alternative route so you know you can go on a frontage road. I mean, think about it. If you want to go down to the loop after church this afternoon, you can have application on our phone. But some of those guys would be arguing, no, I take this way downtown. I take this way downtown. I take this way downtown. 
during this time, there, there wasn't any of that. It was just one road between cities. There was just one way to go. So if there's like a four donkey pileup, there was no alternative route to go around. You just had to wait. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, it's understood his disciples know exactly what he's talking about. First off, he's using singular tem- terminology, but it's also there's just one way. There's not multiple ways. There's one way. And he follows it up with this. He says, I am the truth. Now, there's so much more here than what meets the eye, the truth. See, during, this time, uh, during Jesus' time, there's a popular philosophy about truth. Because Western philosophers before Jesus, so philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle, even Eastern philosophers like Confucius and Buddha, um, these guys lived hundreds of years before Jesus. All these philosophers, they, they talked about this um, capital T truth and lowercase t truths. So lowercase t truths are, are things like medicine, uh, science, just things that we know around us that are true, mathematics, things that we know to be true. Two plus two is four. That would be lowercase t truth. Water boils at 212 degrees, lowercase t truth. Aloe plant soothes sunburn, lowercase t truths. All these lowercase t truths that we know to be true about the world around us. And all these lowercase t truths point to an uppercase t truth, a truth that determines all truth, a higher power that determines what is true and what is not true. So this is a common philosophy during this time. Jesus comes along here. And again, this is so brilliant. Jesus is claiming here, he says, I am the capital T truth. I'm not one of the smaller case T truths that is subject to the main truth. I'm not one of many truths. I am the capital T truth in which all truth is subject to. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you know, Socrates and Aristotle and Confucius and Buddha, their philosophies, oh, they're all talking about me. I am the capital T truth. See, there's this nail that Jesus keeps hammering over and over and over in this passage. It's, it's singular. It's singular. It's one way, the way, one truth, capital T truth. He's not leaving the door open for anything else. He's being very, very clear here. And then he continues on. He says, I am the life. The Hebrew word for life here is uh, zoe, uh, which means life source. So he's not just saying, I'm alive. He's saying, I'm the source of life, the singular source of life. He's not one road. He is the road. He is one road, capital T truth, the source of life. And then Jesus finishes this by saying something so politically incorrect. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, this isn't my opinion. These aren't my words. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying, you want to get to heaven, here's how this is going to go down. You're going to go through me. You're not going to go through some religious ritual. You're not going to go through a prophet. You're not going to go through a priest. You're not going to go through an ideology or philosophy. There may be some good stuff taught out there that teaches nice things, but this isn't about being nice, and this isn't about getting along. This is about getting to heaven, and you're only going to go through me. And forget what our world says about Jesus. That's what Jesus says about himself. A few observations, and these are in your notes. Uh, you can actually take notes on our app, by the way, and then you can email a PDF to your email, which is kind of nice. Or you can just take them by pen and paper, whatever you want. But uh, these are in your notes. Number one, the first observation is sincerity is not all that matters. Sincerity is not all that matters. And I know this is not politically correct, but Jesus wasn't politically correct, so we got to go here. A common thought today, and I've heard this from a lot of my friends, and I'm sure you've heard this, maybe you've even said this before, and that is, it doesn't ma- really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. As long as you're sincere about it. Problem with that is, is you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. 
You think about this. The terrorists on 9-11, they were sincere about their beliefs, weren't they? Absolutely. Arguably more sincere than most Christians. Does that mean God honored their sincerity? Or the Nazis. I mean, the Nazis sincerely believed the work they were doing, creating the purest race, was like beneficial to the world. They sincerely believed that, and many died working to that end. So did God just say, you know, well, hey, they were wrong and performed a lot of atrocities, but at least they were sincere? No. Now, don't get me wrong. Sincerity does matter. Jesus calls for sincerity from his followers, but sincerity must rest in truth for it to be legitimate. Sincerity only matters if it is paired with truth. Just because you believe it doesn't make it true. You can sincerely believe something false. For example, uh, and this might be a little sick, but just go with me here. One of my favorite quotes in history came from General Sedgwick of the Union Army. General Sedgwick was taking his men into battle in 1864, the Civil War. And as his men were approaching the battlefield, Sedgwick noticed that many of his men were like ducking and dodging bullets. He was embarrassed by the action of his men, and so he yelled this. These were his last words. He sincerely believed they couldn't hit him, but he sincerely was wrong. He was sincere, but the content of his faith is where he went wrong. Last words. Sincerity is not all that matters. In fact, if it doesn't rest in truth, sincerity doesn't matter at all. Second observation. Truth does matter. Truth does matter. And this might seem like a, a weird statement, but you have to remember, uh, we live in a world where relativism is, is king. Relativism says, you know, what's true for you may not be true for me. What's true for them is different than what's true for us. So let's just all get along and not seek truth. In fact, a recent study shows that 49% of Americans strongly believe in relativism. So about half of our country uh, holds to this idea. There's no absolute truth which is kind of funny to me because I think 49% of Americans strongly believe that you can't strongly believe. It just doesn't make sense to me. But the fact is, and we see this today, when there's no absolute truth, there's nothing that binds us together. There's no order. There's no structure. It's chaos. So relativism sounds really nice on the front end. Let's all get along. You have your truth. I have my truth. And everyone's happy in their own reality. Not only does that eventually breed chaos, it's just a false reality. Who wants to live in a false reality? It frustrates us. That's a lot of our issues right now as a society. Uh, Jesus, on several occasions, reiterated uh, his feelings about truth. In fact, if, if you know the crucifixion story, you might remember that when, when Jesus is before Pilate and Jesus is having this conversation with Pilate, and Jesus says this. He says, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. Look at this. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus said, I came here to bear witness to the truth. Not a truth, not your truth, the truth. I'm all about the truth. This is why I came. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. you got to remember it was Jesus who said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth mattered greatly to Jesus because according to Jesus, heaven and hell is a matter of truth. Truth matters. Third and final observation, and this is a, a big one. Jesus' preparations matter. Jesus' preparations matter. Jesus said, I am, I'm the one making the preparations. I'm the one getting things ready. Nobody else. It's me. I'm the one that's bringing you to the insulas. And we just read John 14, 3. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. When I was a kid, I, so I went to a, a, a Christian school when I was a kid. And I remember, I think it was in third grade, 
I remember sitting in class, and my teacher was teaching this text, and, and she gets to this verse, and she says, just think, class, Jesus, the carpenter, is designing and creating a place for you. And I remember her saying, this is so cute. She goes, class, it took seven days for God to create the world. And Jesus has been working on your place for 2,000 years. Imagine how great heaven will be. And as a kid, I was like, wow. <laughs> and as cool as that sounds, it's not what Jesus meant. Like Jesus isn't up in heaven right now with a hammer and nails going, not ready to go back yet. Don't send me back there with a rapture. I got to finish these cabinets. It's not what Jesus is doing right now. It's, it's not what this means. What Jesus is talking about right here is this. Hanging from the cross. That's how he prepared a place for you. That's it. The place isn't being prepared depending on how good you are or if you reach a certain level of enlightenment. It's already been prepared. Jesus isn't talking about preparing glory. He's talking about preparing a way to glory, the way in which you get the way. The cross the weight of your sin and shame and my sin and shame and our guilt was placed on his shoulders, led like a lamb to slaughter, his blood covering our sins. And it's that that gets us to heaven. Another way to think about this, just like, just like boil this all down. Another way to think about this is if there are many ways to heaven, then God is just cruel. To make Jesus put on skin live among the poor, be tempted in every way, yet he, perfect man, for him to experience betrayal, utter loneliness, beatings, blood loss, the cross. For what? If there's another way, then God is just plain cruel to torture and slaughter his son for, that, for nothing. I mean, you gotta remember, it was Jesus who, who pled with the father in the garden the night before his execution, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, but there wasn't another way, and so Jesus took the cross. It was the only way. It was the preparations. And because of those preparations, when God looks at you, when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your mess, he doesn't see your past, he sees his son. You imagine that. When you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the God of this universe looks at you and he doesn't see a screw up. The God of this universe sees his son when he looks at you. Those are the preparations that were being made. And that matters. Nothing else prepares you for the next life. Nobody gets to the Father except through Jesus. He made the preparations. It is the truth. It is the way. It is the life. So, having said all that, Junior, sounds like Christianity is pretty exclusive. You're saying Jesus is the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life. You're being exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. To a point. Because of what Jesus said and did, as well as the evidence that backed it up, followers of Jesus do believe there is no salvation apart from Jesus. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from Jesus. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. There is no hope apart from Jesus. So in that regard, yes, Christianity is, ex is exclusive, like every other worldview. But Christianity is also the most inclusive faith. In, in many religions, you need to be part of a certain race, ethnicity, or people group to communicate with God. Yet Jesus invites all people groups. The more groups, the more beauty. In many religions, you need to know a certain language to communicate with God or the gods. Yet Christi Christians speak all different 
languages and tongues. In many religions, you need to be part of a certain culture. You gotta speak a certain way, you gotta dress a certain way, you gotta be fancy. Look around, see the beast of the charlatan who is leading everyone. Jesus and his followers call people just like themselves, the poor and the downtrodden. The church is made up of all social classes. In most religions, you, they care about your rap sheet. They'll only take the good ones, uh, many times the self-righteous ones. Yet Christianity beckons the most reprehensible of people because we understand how far we are from God apart from Jesus. So to answer your question, yes, Christianity is exclusive because Jesus is, but it is also the most inclusive faith. And the truth is Jesus wants you. He wants to open your eyes to the truth. He wants the truth to set you free, freer than you've ever been He's made the preparations, the blood, the cross, the empty tomb. He's done everything to make it happen. Your sin had a price and it has been paid. There is room at the table. There is room in the Father's house. Preparations are made. It's the truth. It's the way. It's the life. Take the invite. Take it today. But you know what's interesting? is uh, After Jesus gets done with this incredible speech, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm the way. I'm the capital T truth. I am, I am the life. It was like this amazing moment, this amazing conversation in history. Philip is one of, the, one of the disciples. He speaks up in verse 9. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it. Verse 9. Show us the Father. That's what this is. Look what Philip says. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough. You know, you seem to... Talk with the Father quite a bit. It's like you're on a first-name basis. Sounds like you're pretty close. Could you have the Father make an appearance? Like, that'd be enough for us. That would give us courage, and that would give us boldness. We're about to go into something difficult, so could you just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us? And Jesus answers in verse 9. He says, don't you know me? Phil, you've been with me for how many years now? How can you ask me that? I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. I'm enough. He's enough. He is the way, the truth, the life. So I just want to throw this question to you. Is Jesus enough for you? That's our so what question. Is Jesus enough for you? And first off, is he enough for your salvation? Have you taken those preparations, that free gift of salvation that Jesus has provided? Have you taken that? And if you haven't yet, now's the time, right here, right now. What are you waiting for? But for those of us who have taken the way, I just want to ask you, are, are you, are you Philip? Do you see Jesus as the way? You know, I got my, my uh, get-out-of-hell-free card here. I got Jesus. <laughs> you see him as the way, but you don't necessarily see him as the life yet. And so when it comes to your marriage, your marriage is completely unaffected by Jesus. Because Jesus isn't enough for your marriage. Or when it comes to your purity, your purity has nothing to do with Jesus or your faith in God. Because Jesus isn't enough for your purity, for your sex life. When it comes to your finances, your finances are not directed at all by your higher power. Because Jesus is enough for your finances. Or your career has nothing to do with your faith. Because Jesus isn't enough for your career. How many of us are Philip? Oh, we see you as the way. And we're grateful for it. But we're Philip. It's like we're walking around with Jesus in our back pocket going, I'm going to need something more, though. He's not enough. I'm going to need something. I'm going to need something more. He's not part of your love life. He's not part of our families, our finances, our careers. We just don't see him as enough. 
And like Jesus said to Philip, I wonder how many of us, Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Do you still not know me? I've revealed myself to you. I have been with you. I have shown you life. I have made preparations for you. And yet you're overlooking me on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and all day Wednesday. I'm still not enough for you. And so that's the so what question I just want you to take home today is, where is Jesus not enough for you? Which part of your life has Jesus just been left out of because you've been searching for something else? Where is it at for you? Is it work? Is it marriage? Is it dating? Is it purity? Is it finances? What is it for you? Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you, uh, Jesus, that you are the way. You are the truth, the capital T truth. I thank you that you're the life. And Father, for anyone in here who has not yet taken that free gift of salvation, those preparations that were made, I pray they take it right here, right now. For those of us who have, though, God, I, I ask you, the power of your Holy Spirit, you keep Jesus on the forefront of our minds. That we start seeing all of life through what Jesus has done. Our careers, our money, our, our, our love life, our dating, our marriages, our parenting. And we see it all through Jesus May you remind us continually, Jesus is enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.